like you're juggling too many things, like you have too many responsibilities, like you wish you could just have no responsibilities for 24 hours or 48 hours or a week. I know that I am one of those people and I generally really, really like to be super productive. Um, I actually enjoy it. Like I want to be doing stuff when I'm sitting down. I want to get up and I have the energy to do it. But I also noticed that I have this tendency to like run with that energy for so long that I don't, uh, that I like run into a wall and I completely break down. So I feel like I kind of dealt with that last week and I'm just getting back to it. And so I'm trying to build in some more wellness, uh, things rather than feeling like I need a three day spa week or three day spa day. Um, building in those things daily and weekly so that I don't feel like I'm doing something that's unsustainable, right? And one of those things to take care of myself is to say no. And this is super important because I I think as people, as volunteers, as mentors, as foster parents, as service providers, it is so easy to be pressured into saying yes. And not even, it really doesn't really even take pressure, guys. Like, not really even, right? Somebody says, can you do this? Or can you help out? Or can you take this on? And it's like, sure, I can do that. And we don't really evaluate what's going on in our life. We just want to help. We just want to jump in. We want to be useful. But as we all know, and I'll say over and over again, if we're not taking care of ourselves, that we're not being useful. And really, you end up hurting not only yourself, but you hurt those who you signed up to serve if you end up serving uh, willy-nilly or if you end up serving not at 100%. So you want to make whatever is on your plate things that you can do 100%. And that might be only one thing or only three things, right? In the Stable Moments uh, mentor training, I make it super clear what the commitment is, that it's a 10-month commitment, one hour a week, and I am happy to hear people say no. People that are aware of their schedules, aware of their responsibilities, aware of their work schedule, right? And they say like, I would love to take this on, but I don't think I can do once a week, every single week, the same time each week. And I'm like, thank you for telling us so much better than people that say, sure, I'll fit it in. And then don't show up for a kid here and there. Right. And the kids going, I wonder where they are and do they value me? And, and do they value our time together? So saying no as a service provider is something that I really uh, like to hear mentors do. Of course, they can help in other ways. Maybe there's a way that you can help that isn't, you know, a full position. And I recently applied to be on the board of directors of 
a local nonprofit that helps foster kids, of course, because I felt like I needed to help my local community. But I know that I'm helping, you know, a global community. And I know that I'm doing my part. So I haven't really felt like I needed to get in locally. But I, I still kind of feel this nag to do so about building better communities. But I really needed to assess like, where can you be effective? And I didn't want to um, actually take on a caseload with a kid. I didn't want to be one of the mentors. That's why I went for board of directors because I could be more of an advisor and I could do more of the administrative stuff, which I, I do better at. Um, and I felt like it's maybe not less of a commitment, but it is a different type of commitment that's easier for me. So that way I would serve them better. Gosh, I would hate to say, yep, I'm going to show up every Saturday and then realize that doesn't work for me and now I have to back out. Or I'm like causing myself to be sick or hurting my relationship with my family to keep those commitments. So I want to give you guys permission to say no. It's really, really important and it's beautiful. Uh, I saw a quote somewhere that said the difference between successful people and really, really successful people are really, really successful people say no. Uh, the more that you're deluded, the more that you try to help everyone, the more that your mission, your vision, and even if this isn't for your like, you know, place of work, but your mission and your vision for your life, if it isn't focused if you are not saying no to everything that doesn't align directly with where you're going, then you're going to get there slower. So want to give you permission to say no. I want you guys to share in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group what you say no to or what you have said no to recently and how that made you feel. Saying no is not a bad thing. And as you do it and you get more practice and you get more focused and all the things you're doing are super intentional and not what other people want you to do or opportunities that just arose, but you're actually evaluating your time and you're making decisions based on what you believe is right for your life, you will start to feel freer and you'll start to feel more effective in those areas. So with kids, with, I mean, as nonprofit directors, uh, parents, we get pulled in a gazillion different areas, right? And we get, you know, we get a lot of opportunities passed our way. Uh, and so we need to be able to kind of have a quick decipher, is this something that's going to move me forward? Um, and do I have time to do it? Do I have the resources to do it? How long is it going to take me? Evaluate it and then come back. You don't have to say no rudely. You don't have to say, no, sorry. No, you can say like, hey, this sounds like an amazing opportunity. Let me tell you somebody that might be able to help you with that. Or, hey, I'm super swamped right now. Um, but if you could give me maybe for a few months to get this done, I could do that. Uh, thanks for bringing this opportunity up. If you can refer somebody else to do it, if you say, oh, I'll share this opportunity with others, that is your way of saying, hey, I totally value this opportunity and what you're bringing to me, but um, I, I'm going to pass it on, but I'll pass it on. So hopefully you get somebody else. I don't know. I hear a lot of people that give a lot of themselves and they say things like, well, I have to have to do this and then I have to do this. And just rethink those things that you're saying you have to do. Rethink um, how much you need to be there, um, how much you need to take on. Do you have to do them? 
Could you do them in a way that actually better suits you? You know, if, if somebody's having you watch kids at their house, could you watch kids at your house so that it works for you? There's ways to think about each situation so that even if you can't directly say no, maybe you can make it work for you. All right, guys, today's guest is Beth Tyson. She is a psychotherapist, a trauma responsive care specialist, and a children's book author. She offers parenting, coaching, and training for organizations who want to go beyond trauma-informed to become trauma-responsive, and we kind of talk about the differences there. She has such great, great insight for us, and she also talks about grief, which we always talk about trauma, but we don't talk about, you know, allowing children to grieve to grieve, and also uh, the grief that we go through uh, if we have children coming in and out of our lives. Beth is an incredible asset to this field. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. so much for joining us on the Stable Moments podcast. I am so glad that we were able to connect actually on Instagram. And it's so amazing how we can like meet and network all sorts of people in the trauma field. Um, So if you could just tell the audience who you are and a little bit about your background and how you came to work with children and families. Sure. So my name is Beth Tyson, and I'm a psychotherapist and parenting coach for families and children that have been impacted by trauma. I started working as a family therapist in homes uh, after I graduated with my master's degree. And I was working for foster. I was helping foster and kinship and adoptive families uh, through different levels of crises in their life. So uh, many times these families were on the verge of having a child removed from their home for whatever reason, mostly behavioral issues. Mm. Uh, Many of the Foster parents, adoptive parents, and kinship parents did not understand trauma or have any awareness of what it was or why, and they were not trauma-informed, and because of that, their parenting was not Mm -hmm. trauma-responsive, and that was causing a lot of disruption within the family and was exacerbating negative behaviors um, with the children, and so it was my job to come in and like stabilize the situation, help keep the placement intact, help keep the child in the home. And I did most of that through a combination of family therapy with the child and the parents, sometimes with the children alone, sometimes with the parents alone and or caregiver. And I um, did a lot of parenting education in around trauma and trauma responsive parenting. And you did that in the home? In the home. That's yes. awesome. I know that's really, that's a really important piece. When I was um, a post-adoption case manager, the therapist that I worked with, like she had the same caseload that I had, but I was like the in-home arm of mm-hmm. her work. So that was, it was, it was nice to hear, but we've heard um, on this podcast from other guests how important the in-home piece is because a lot of times what parents report is happening or just like it's, t- it's normal for us to like see a situation one way. But like, if we can actually be in the home and see what's happening, we can be usually more helpful. 
Yes. I think it's critical to be in the home because you can model for the parents. If you see a situation that starts to pop up, you can model how to handle it and how to, the words that you can use. And um, they really learn from that, like witnessing it in action, seeing a therapist uh, handle a situation that might arise can really be a, a great learning opportunity. Um, so there aren't many programs that do that type of work. I'm sure you don't come across it that often, but it is it can be really helpful if you have somebody who works with the family in the family's home. Did you have any situations, I didn't have this on my list to ask you, but now that you're saying it, did you have any situations where, because I know like some of this trauma work and it's so related to natural horsemanship, it's, it's funny, but um, that like, you might need to go with a therapeutic intervention for as long as it's going to take. And so did you ever find that you were like in the home for like three hours or a lot longer than, than maybe your scheduled time because you really needed to see this through? Yes, absolutely. There were times we, we normally would do like an hour to an hour and a half was kind of like what we, what was our typical amount of time with a family. But oftentimes we went two, three hours uh, just trying to work through whatever was going on. Um, so yeah, that was, it was common to have very long sessions because there's just so much, there's so much complexity to what's going on within these families. Yeah. And you can't leave. Like if you're going to model something and, you're, yeah. and you might be in the middle of it, like you're modeling it and it's not really, we're not, we haven't reached the hump yet and it's still yeah. looking very uh, messy. And yeah. it's like, you've got to show them the other side so that they can have the confidence to do it themselves. So yeah, I just remember yeah. a few of my like hour visits turn three and a half. And I always was just like, I'm going to be there as long as I need to be there. But I know with some case loads, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's impossible almost. So yeah, the program I worked for, which was a wonderful program was just defunded by the government. Mm. And so it's, it's so hard because these are the most vulnerable families and they need the support and they need the mental health care. And as a, we just don't prioritize it, unfortunately, as a, as a, country as a system. So that's, that was really hard to see go away because I know how much it was. We often would have an, a year long wait list for our services. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so um, you mentioned the, a lot of the parents, kinship parents, foster parents um, weren't trauma informed and that meant that they weren't able to be trauma responsive in their parenting. So can you tell us, we hear all the time, especially on this podcast about being trauma-informed. Yeah. So can you tell us what the difference is between trauma-informed and being trauma-responsive? Right. I mean, they're two sides of the same coin, I guess I would say. They go together. Um, but really, I, I use it to differentiate between being trauma-informed as like knowing about trauma and how it impacts a child's brain and understanding the behaviors and the symptoms of trauma. And I define trauma responsive as having the tools to apply in these mm. situations, practical skills and tools that you can do with your family members, you know, with your, with your classroom or whatever organization that you work for, where you're actually applying the skills. So it's, to me, it's trauma responsive is one step past trauma informed, but that's just my way of differentiating. Um, sometimes when I hear trauma informed, uh, when I talk to people, they, yes, they are trauma informed, but they don't know what to do. Yeah. So, and um, that's huge yeah. because like, we just talked about the in-home piece. 
I mean, you can tell somebody in your office about the impact of trauma and how it impacts human development and how their kids might react. And But tools are completely different. And then actually doing it is a right. whole nother ballgame. So I think it's really important to think about the practice that goes into once you're trauma-informed, being able to practice. And I think, you know, our program, we have service providers that listen to this podcast, foster parents, and we also have mentors, like community mentors. And I think that the practice is difficult, you know, like taking everything you know and starting to use some of these trauma responses or these therapeutic interventions um, and getting curious and getting playful and being empathetic and all of that. I think that it can be like, it can be really um, intimidating and we have to challenge our typical responses. And so I think that we need to also, you know, give ourselves some grace and kind of understand that this practice is the whole point of trying something and then going and hopefully you have somebody you can talk to that's like in a supervisory role or something that you can kind of, or a therapist that you're working with that you can work through. Cause I had so many parents say like, okay, I tried this, but then I did it this way, which kind of went more of like the punitive route or something. And then they felt bad about themselves. And, and you had to just like, kind of say, this is all practice. And like the fact that you're trying is awesome. Right. There is no straight line from point A to point B. Um, even as a parent of a four-year-old, I sometimes don't do things exactly the way I hope to do them as a parent. And we do, we have to forgive ourselves and just keep trying. And, and the great thing is that, you know, I realize there is no magic wand. There is no set of skills. There is no practice that is going to heal these children overnight or these families overnight. But if we just keep trying and keep chipping away at it and children, all different children will respond differently to different interventions. So you might try one thing that you heard from somewhere in one of your trainings and apply it and it doesn't work at all or backfires. But the idea is to not get discouraged, to keep learning, keep trying to apply these things. And it really does take a lot of courage and bravery because a lot of times trauma and responsive parenting goes against your intuition as a parent Mm -hmm. and the things that you typically would do or the way that you were raised, which is what we all tend to fall back on. Um, It really is a lot of the parenting is counterintuitive when it comes to trauma. Yeah, absolutely. When we were emailing uh, back and forth, you had brought up the um, term ambiguous loss. And actually, I had just read like this long article on ambiguous loss and how it has to do with the pandemic. In that like a lot of us are done our, our surge capacity because we kind of went into like, okay, this is an emergency or this is, you know, a new precedent. So we need to use, you know, whatever reserves we have of energy. But now we're kind of feeling this loss of our normal, even like loss of what our life used to look like. And they described it as ambiguous loss. So can you kind of define for the audience what ambiguous loss is? Sure. So I I also wrote an, a similar article. I'm wondering if it was the, the same one or if it was a different one. But I published a piece a couple months ago on ambiguous loss. And um, Pauline Boss is the person that did most of the research on ambiguous loss. And she defines it as when a loss occurs where a person is physically present, but psychologically absent, or psychologically absent, but physically present. So these might be circumstances where um, in foster care and in, in adoption, where um, 
maybe the biological parent is, you know, still alive and in the world out there somewhere, but the child just doesn't have access to them. Um, or maybe it's a person, a, a child whose parent is addicted. And so they're psychologically or they're, they're physically present, but psychologically they're not really there and able to care for them. So these are different types of losses. Dementia and Alzheimer's is another type of ambiguous mm -hmm. loss. Of course, there are missing people. Um, you know, there are a, a range of things, even being in the military, having parents in the military can be seen as a type of ambiguous loss because yes, they're physically alive and in the world, but if you don't have access to them, that's still a loss. Yeah. Parents in prison yeah. would be a big one for kids. As yes. Yes. Parents who are incarcerated. Absolutely. That's definitely another type of ambiguous loss. And what Pauline, uh, her research, research showed was that Children and adults who go through this type of loss, they have PTSD-like symptoms. Um, and often, oftentimes their symptoms are pathologized, meaning they end up with a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or, or different things. But really what's underneath it is a normal bereavement process that's going on, and they just really need the tools to, to help them um, cope with the loss. And a lot of times it's getting comfortable with discomfort, you know, trying to help them understand that, yes, this person you love can be here and can also be gone. Mm. Like the ambivalence, getting comfortable with that ambivalence of like, yes, they are here. And yes, they also aren't here for you. Mm. Um, can be really hard to accept, but it doesn't um, sugarcoat things. And it is the truth of their lives. And a lot of times, especially with children, we try and like brush everything under the carpet or the child will make up stories and tell themselves that, you know, they're their mom's on tour with Beyonce or whatever it is, you know, they make up these stories to fill in the blanks if they don't have the answers. And so if you as a foster parent can validate that for them and, and say, this is really hard for you because your mom or your dad, they are here in the world, but you can't be with them right now. And that must be really hard for you. And mm -hmm. validating that for them having a word, having words to put to it, if the child is old enough for you to be able to explain what ambiguous loss is, um, having them put a word around it, even that can be really helpful and, uh, and soothing to know that, you know, not everyone goes through this, but there is a name for it. I love this because we talk about trauma all the time and how these, even if, even if the only trauma is being removed, that these children have trauma and this is how you're trauma informed and this is how you should respond. But we rarely talk about the grief, mm -hmm. like the grief process and what, how that should be treated. Like we jump right to how to be trauma informed. Um, rather than uh, like holding a space for a time to grieve and um, acknowledging grief. And sometimes that's done in a really overt way. Like, you know, thank God you're out of their home and you're in a better home. Yeah. That's completely ignoring it. And then other ways, it's just like, oh my gosh, so many things have happened to you, but it's, but we don't give them the like, you miss your mom and, and that's okay. Do you, in your work, um, I remember we used to do this like um, physical items thing. Like if we have a physical item from the parent or if we have a, um, a family book or a photo book or something where we would actually yeah. take time and let the child either sleep with that item, take that item to school, maybe not a whole photo book, but or like sit with, you know, 
that on the weekend, anytime they feel like they need to reach for it. Is that something that um, is supported? Absolutely. Any way you can keep the child connected to their biological family in a healthy way is going to bolster up their, their resiliency and their strength and their ability to cope with what they're going through. So whether it's books, whether it's items from home, I mean, a lot of times these children, they just lose everything at once. And that's also what they're grieving. So they're not just grieving the loss of their parents, but they might be grieving loss of their pets and their neighborhood friends and um, toys and clothing and things that they became attached to. So yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head when you say that we really do skim over the grief part of this. And um, we try and kind of just like shove that part under the rug because grief is so hard for all of us to really feel as an emotion. Um, And I get it. I understand why people kind of want to skip over that part. It's painful, Mm. Um, but it can be really healing and a really important piece to even begin to heal the trauma that may have taken place. I forgot how I got off on this tangent, but just to say, yes, that attachment, those attachment objects that they might have to mom and dad can be really helpful. And that's for any child, even my own child. I sent, I send her to school, not right now. She's not going to school, but, um, with picture of me. So she can just pull that a picture of me and her. So she could pull that out of her backpack whenever she wants. We did a lot of life book work as a therapist, um, where we would, if we didn't know, sometimes we didn't even know who the father was. We just didn't have any identifying information. Um, but, you know, maybe we could find out where he was from. You know, maybe we knew the town he was from. I w- there were times where I would take children to the town where their dad lived or was from so that they could just see where he was from. Even though it's not a connection directly to him, any type of connection to their birth family can be valuable. Um, maybe they don't know anything about mom and dad, but they know the hospital the child was born in. You can take them to that hospital and say, this is where you were born. Um, you know, this is where your mom gave birth to you. It's some, it's that something, it's some kind of connection and you have to be creative to find out what it might be. If you don't have a whole lot of information as a lot of times people don't. I love that. So can you, you just touched on it, life books, they were big in my post adoption work. Can you tell um, our listeners what a life book is and is it appropriate for foster parent, I mean, you can go on Pinterest and you can find, you know, different inserts and things that are appropriate for a life book. Is it appropriate for uh, foster parents to be building these life books with kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of times uh, it just gets skipped over because of lack of time, lack of resources. And so if the foster parent can have a hand in that and be supportive, anytime the foster parent or adoptive parent can, um, at least be healthy and neutral about the birth family and encouraging of having the child understand where they're from and the positive things that happened in their previous world. Because, you know, even these kids that come from really hard places, there's still some good in there. Oh yeah. You know, even, even, even in the worst situations, I'm sure there were still some moments in there that were good for them that were, were comforting for them. Um, And so as a foster parent, if you can be supportive by cr- helping them create a life book, and a life book is um, a timeline basically with photos and images, and it could be words, it could be documents, it could be you know a birth certificate or maybe a copy of the birth certificate or like your baby handprints. You know, it's anything that starts at the beginning as early, as far back as you can go in the child's life and get information about it. So again, sometimes when I couldn't get 
when I was making a life book with a child, if I couldn't, if I didn't have pictures of their birth parents, again, that would be a thing that we could go and take pictures of, you know, with the, their hometown or the house they grew up in or uh, the hospital they were born in or, you know, something else that would represent and be a timeline and like a storyline. So the child has a narrative of their story. It's especially important for children in foster care because they move around a lot into different families and they lose their memory of like, wait, how old was I when I was where and what and who and who did I live with? And it all becomes blurred together because it's really hard to remember everything and everywhere that they've been. And so if they have a life book that follows them along that journey, that as they get older, especially into their teen years, they find it really helpful to be able to look back on that and say, okay, this is where I was. And I, I have a narrative here of, of my life and where I was. And it's just, can, it can be really like grounding for a child who often feels out of control. Yeah. And it's so important that um, you start it, you know, as soon as possible, because, um, and if you're a foster parent that does this and then has the child move on to another home, and this is something you're offering off to the case manager or the next foster home, then it might start this kind of trajectory or pattern for people. And there were so many times as a post-adoption case manager that, of course, I was working with kids that had been adopted, that we would start working on their life book at 14 or 12 or something. And there would be pages for placement one, placement two, placement three, placement four, placement five, placement six. But getting that information, even as a case manager, was difficult. Um, So So you don't know if you'll be the first or the second or the third or the the fifth or whatever placement, um, but starting this process with them, even if it only happens in your home, uh, can totally be helpful for all the reasons that Beth said. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I don't know that everybody does life books. So. No, I think I think most people are just trying to deal with the day to day, you know, chaos is going on with everybody's families right now, especially, but, you know, I think we all get wrapped up in the day to day and you make a really good point about having that book passed on to the next family. Um, because, you know, things often get lost in these moves and these transitions. And, um, if as a caseworker or as a foster parent, if you can make a real effort to have that kept in a safe place and really, sort of treasure that as something really important for the child's future. Um, you know, it can be really helpful as, a as a therapist, we would make copies of everything we did for our life book so that, uh, when the child turned 18, if they want their case history, they can find the pages, at least that we did with them mm. in their file so that they will have access to that. That's um, nice. Yeah. Cause they could lose it. Like any right, yeah. you know, yeah. kids yeah. lose things all the time. So yeah, as, as a practitioner, as a service provider, if you do life book work, I encourage you to make copies of that and keep it in your electronic files because they can access that later on. That's a great, great idea. So we deal with a lot of foster parents that um, don't realize how much grief will be involved in foster parenting. And where they get a placement and for whatever reason, you know, they want to adopt that child and then the child's moved or they find kin at the last minute. So um, tell us how ambiguous loss impacts foster parents. Oh, yeah. In those situations. Yeah. So foster parents obviously go through a lot of grief, too, because um, 
oftentimes, yeah, placements are disrupted or another family member is found and things change or they get sent back home to their parents. Um, And that can that can be a really hard thing to go through as a foster parent, especially if you were on track thinking you were going to adopt the child and then suddenly it changes. And so, yeah, you're going as an adult, you're going through the same exact type of ambiguous loss where this person is out there in the world, but um, you may not have access to them. And it's, it's acknowledging that. I think again, it's that put giving that, giving that feeling a word really can help you not feel so alone that you know that there's something that explains the feelings that you're having. Um, and then it's also finding ways to, you know, see the silver lining, see the good that comes from this. And there's a, an analogy I like to use, um, especially in the work that I did, but it applies to foster parents too. So bear with me here as I explain this, but I call it the pickle jar analogy. And basically what it is, is a little story about how when you are trying to open a jar that you can't get the lid off and you're banging it and you're doing all this stuff and you're trying your hardest and you you can't get the lid off of this jar. And so you hand it to the next person and, you know, maybe they try and they can't get it and, you know, they run it under cold water and it still doesn't open. And then they hand it to the third person and pop, the lid comes right off, right? And everybody that had tried is like, oh, what? How did he? How did he get the lid off? I don't get it. And you feel a little bit like I don't know. You feel some type of way about that, right? That you put in this effort and and you didn't get to see the results, kind of thing. And um, I explain that to say that that's kind of like the work that we're all doing. And you may not see the impact that you made on this child's life, and you mm-hmm. may not be the one that gets the lid off the jar or that helps them all the way through to the end to see the final result. Um, but you have your hands on the jar. You have your hands on the jar every single day, you know, trying to help this child um, navigate through some really hard circumstances. And the, that effort that you make with your hands on the jar is just as important as all the other hands that are, that are there too. So, you know, just to give some hope, you know, to foster parents that, you know, the time they've spent with you has been really powerful and you've given them a safe place and uh, a a lot of comfort and care that they might not otherwise have. And that can build resiliency. And foster parents, um, every interaction a child has after they've experienced a trauma can, has a potential to be a corrective emotional experience for the child. So as foster parents, you can be that corrective emotional experience. And what I mean by that is that um, every healthy interaction that you have with the child and every soothing moment or moment of comfort that you've had with that child can literally rewire the neural pathways in the brain that were set up from the abuse or neglect that they may have experienced. So, um, you know, the work that you're doing and the, the effort that you're making to help these children really does impact them long term. And so that's just my way of, you know, helping you to manage and navigate through that that loss and grief that you go through. Yeah, well, and what you just um, what you just touched on is good for anyone, a service provider, a, a mentor, foster parent, whoever you are, grandparent of adopted kid, whoever you are, you have, even in just a moment, you can be, you know, correcting those emotional experiences or those um, adverse childhood events. So don't 
even if you're just seeing a kid for an hour a week or whatever, never think that it's, it's just anything because it may be all part of the, the, the hands on the pickle jar, <laughs> yeah. um, which I, I love, love, love that analogy. And I hadn't heard it before. I wonder, I, I think that acknowledging their grief, you know, foster parents acknowledging their grief and allowing themselves to have their own, if they need it, like ceremonies or rituals that they do after a child leaves their home, even if they hold on to a physical item. Yeah. Just feeling okay and doing that. Absolutely. Um, because these kids can take our whole hearts. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, and I just, I, this were, I, I hadn't heard of ambiguous loss like before this year. Hmm. So, um, and we might have, uh, listened or read the same article. Mine was saying even like a lost limb, mm. Like could be part of ambiguous loss, which I was like, wow, there's a lot of losses that like, you can feel like they're not real losses. Yes. Because it's not death, but that it's still there. And it's still absolutely something that you grieve. I'm really surprised at how little we do on grief now that we're bringing this up. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's not a topic that we talk too much about. Well, and I like to say that all change is loss. Any change. Mm -hmm. It's all it's all a loss. Um, you know, with each thing that changes, you lose something and you gain something. And we don't usually acknowledge the part that's been lost. And again, that's just like our, our culture to not want to focus on the painful emotions, but you're absolutely right. Like we need to give foster parents that space, that, that opportunity to really grieve and to acknowledge that that is, is hard. And that, um, there are certainly rituals that they could do, or I can't think of, like, I know, like, I know, like for birth family, a lot of times when someone's, when someone was adopted, they would like release balloons. And, you know, they can be the same types of things that we do when we, we have a death or we have a loss or we want to memorialize something. I mean, I think that having a, a place in your home, even if it's, you know, um, a picture wall or whatever works for you. Um, you can donate in someone's honor. You can like whatever keeps their memory alive and whatever works for you. I know that these children are totally parts of these families' lives and the time that that child spent should be acknowledged. You know, they should feel fine um, honoring that time in their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that people might not realize, and I don't know what it's like where, where you live, but we had a program called Lifelong Connections. And it was for helping teens Mm. that were about to age out of the foster care system, helping to connect them with lifelong connections. Um, And a lot of times it was previous foster parents or previous teachers or counselors or just anyone who wanted to commit to being a lifelong connection for this child, even though they weren't taking care of them or bringing them under their wing, but maybe they would invite them to a holiday dinner or, you know, help them Mm -hmm. get off to college or, you know, help them practice for their first interview for a job. You know, these different ways that you can still be in the child's life where you can still be a connection, um, even though they might not be in your home, um, Mm -hmm. but that you can, if there's a way for you to still remain in, in contact in some smaller way, maybe you offer rides to appointments or, or things like that. A lot of times I see that with kinship families where maybe a kin 
can't take in or, or raise the child, but they offer like, well, I'll drive them to their visits or to school or, you know, they take on some other role so that they can still maintain contact. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Okay. So you have written a children's book. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, it's called A Grand Family for Sullivan. And it is about kinship care and grand families and foster care too. But it's about a little koala who suddenly his whole life turns upside down and he has to go and live with grandma because mom and dad were unable to keep him safe. And it talks about all of the big emotions he goes through. And I wrote it from a therapeutic standpoint and it was based off of real life experiences that I had with families in, in my role as a therapist. And what I saw was that there's just so much misunderstanding about the child's behaviors that I tried to explain how like when a child is actually really angry and feeling rage that underneath they're really worried and they're really scared and they're Mm -hmm. constantly asking themselves questions about why they have to live here. Where's mom and dad? When am I going to see them again? You know, there's all these questioning questions and worries that are going on in their brain, which a is just exhausting for any, anybody to be constantly like your batteries be burning in the background about worries about your, the safety of your family or when you might see them again. Um, but also a lot of times it comes out as anger instead of showing fear or sadness. A lot of times kids will show anger because it's an easier emotion to access a lot of times. And it's more um, acceptable in a way it's more acceptable to be angry than weak or vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so even though angry isn't the best, it's like a little more accepted than, um, than feeling or appearing to be weak. And especially for a child who's scared, the last thing they want to do is look vulnerable and weak. Uh, The book walks through Sullivan, his name is Sullivan, his emotions Mm -hmm. as he adjusts to life with grandma and he wants answers. And in the book, we give him those answers in age appropriate language um, so that caregivers, therapists, social workers, um, case managers, anyone who's working with a child in this situation has a book to bring to the child to explain what is happening and why and talks about the different things that they can do to cope with it. So there's coping skills and mindfulness skills built into the story as well. But yeah, it's called A Grand Family for Sullivan. And in the back, my favorite page is I have a list of all the other like well-known or famous people who have been raised by either a grandparent or a relative. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just wanted kids to know they're not alone in this situation. There aren't, there's like one other children's book on this topic. And when we were working with families, I just couldn't find one. And we all wanted one. There was 10 of us, 10 therapists, and we all wished we had a book like this and we just didn't have one. So I was like, one day I'm going to, I'm going to publish one. And I did. (laughs) Um, But yeah, really the purpose is to help kids feel less alone in this situation and to have some, some coping skills and language for what is actually happening. That is awesome. So where is the best place for people to get that? Sure. It's available on Amazon. You can search my name, Beth Tyson, or you can search a grand family for Sullivan and it'll pop right up. Um, And on my website, I go into a lot more detail and that's bethtyson.com. And there's a page called uh, Meet Sullivan. And under Meet Uh, Sullivan, you can can see more information. And there's a link in there to Amazon 
That's awesome. I love that you, um, yeah, we need leaders. And when there's not a resource out there, I love that you stepped up and made the resource because that's, I swear, like I, um, I did the same thing with the Stable Moments program. I was like, certainly there has to be an equine program specifically for foster and adopted kids. And I was searching everywhere and there wasn't like a clear program. There are certain other programs that served a whole, you know, a big umbrella of kids where foster kids um, or adopted kids uh, fell under, but nothing specific. So I was like, I guess I'm going to do this. But it's funny that you're like, it's 2000, whatever. How is there not a book on this? Or how is there not a program for this? No, there's lots of books on other topics. And I did a lot of research to try and figure out, you know, what exactly I wanted to write about. So I wasn't like recreating the wheel. And it was just, it was astounding that there aren't any characters that depict this situation for kids. And that's why a lot of times they get bullied in school. That was another reason I wrote the book was because um, a lot of Grand families have shared with me that the kids get bullied because their parents are old or, you know, why is, where's your mom? Why is, why is your grandma always picking you up? And, you know, it's, it becomes like an, an embarrassment or a shameful thing for the kids. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted the book to also be used as a tool in schools, you know, to help build empathy for children who aren't in this situation to understand what it's like for a kid who is going through this so that hopefully um, they wouldn't, maybe it would re- reduce some of the bullying. Of kids and that have different family dynamics. So where else do you want to tell us about any of your other work or where else we can follow you? Maybe social media or. Oh yeah. So I do a lot of webinars online around parent uh, trauma responsive parenting and trauma responsive care for schools and organizations. And I, on my website, I also have a blog that I post a lot about different um, techniques and I, talk a lot about grief on there because that's been my own personal life journey um, with trauma was suddenly losing my mom Mm -hmm. when I was 26. And so my website has some grief uh, work on there and my, um, and then my blog also talks a lot about trauma responsive care. Um, So you can find me there. And then I'm very active on Facebook. I have a Facebook group called Emotiminds and that's a group of professionals and parents who want to increase their emotional, the emotional development in their family. And so each week I put out an emotional enrichment activity for kids and for parents to do together um, so that they can help build those, those skills and uh, hopefully impact their family in a positive way. So it's like a little classroom, an online classroom, and then people can post in their questions and other resources that they come across. And it's, it's really been a lot of fun to get some like-minded people together. Um, and in that group, I, I do have a lot of foster and kinship families just by nature of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's called Emotiminds. Emotiminds. Okay. Well, I will link to Emotiminds, your website so that people can, do you have a newsletter that people can jump on? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I have a newsletter. It it pops up and asks you after you're the, on my site for like a minute. It'll pop up and ask if you want to subscribe. And when people subscribe, I send you immediately send you a um, an anxiety busting activity for the whole family. Oh, nice. So I'll I'll do your um, website so people can sign up for your newsletter and read your blog. 
Um, I hope that people um, access a grand family for Sullivan. That is so sweet. Um, yeah, and such a good resource to have on hand. I know that we, um, with the Stable Moments locations, it would be helpful for you guys to have on hand and also to offer to families um, to tell families about that book. Um, yeah. We can, uh, Stable Moments can add it to our parent resources page on our website as well. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was like awesome, super enlightening for me, I know. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and just being a champion for these kids out there and and developing the resources and staying on it. I mean, it, it takes a lot to kind of keep the, uh, the social platforms up and running and all of that, but that's really what we need right now, I think. It's a lot, but I'm trying really my best to advocate for this group because I just feel that they're so vulnerable and they really need that support and there just aren't there just aren't enough resources out there and information out there. I agree. And you're doing a great job. Thank you. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. on so many topics that I hadn't even thought of. So ambiguous loss, we don't think of that. We often don't think about grief in this work, which grief is so important. Now I want to get a grief expert on so that we can dive more into what grief and trauma have in common and how we can give space for grieving children, grieving foster parents, uh, as well as trauma and being trauma-informed and responsive. I love how she broke that all down. You guys know that for the month of August, if you want to be enrolled in a drawing to get a copy of the Stable Moments book, then you need to leave a Apple Podcast review, screenshot it, and email it to Rebecca at StableMoments.com. And as always, I am going to read one of those reviews because not only do they keep me going, they keep Stable Moments podcast coming up in the searches when people are looking for a related podcast. So this one says, encouraging words. Rebecca offers great insight into a plethora of topics relating to children, trauma, and families. Her heart for children shines through each podcast and is an encouragement to all who listen. The name for that, the screen name is Shubiness. So thank you so much for that review. All right, guys, I want to hear what you have taken off your plate this week or recently. What have you said no to? What opportunity came up where you actually protected your time, your self-care, your space, and you said no to? I want to hear about it in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Until next time, guys. See you then.